This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Find out how a blind ref is calling out ableism in the sighted community and what a big job that is. And how frustration led our guest today to become a passionate and effective disability advocate. Kia ora, I'm Denise Quinlan and this is Bringing Wellbeing to Life. In this season devoted to collective resilience, I'm talking to people resilient people of a special kind. Not only are these people resilient themselves, but they're change makers, enabling collective resilience to grow in the world around them for the benefit of colleagues, students or the world at large. I'm joined today by Julie Woods, aka That Blind Woman. And there's a story to how Julie uh, got that label or put that on herself. Julie has never let the loss of her sight hold her back. After going blind in 1997 at the age of 31, she learned to say why not to opportunities. We're going to talk more and more about those. And especially, more recently, Julie has taken on the role of the blind ref, calling out ableism I'm going to learn to say that, Um, wherever she encounters it. And she is making change and making waves. Kia ora, Julie. We are delighted to have you with us. Welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Kia ora, Denise, and it's lovely to be here. And what a beautiful introduction. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see if it lasts. I feel somewhat under pressure. Oh, stop. (laughs) Never, never. So to begin... Tell us about you, where you're from, what brought you to where you are right now? Wow. I know, huge question, sorry. <laughs> How many minutes? <laughs> as long as you like. I was, I was born in Otipoti, Dunedin, and in a suburb called Mornington, Bridges Street, Mornington, and then moved to Bradford when I was just two years of age and went to Bradford Primary School. A, in a kind of rural setting in Dunedin, which um, a school and place that I loved. And when I was eight, my mother and father built a new house and I had to move to another school, Denise. Oh, oh, yeah, trauma yes, in a girl's life. Yeah, um, big change for me, but I went to Balaclava School and loved that and moved on through to intermediate and high school. And then at the age of 18, I noticed the the writing on the blackboard of my last year of what was then the seventh form um, was blurry. And that began began a vision loss journey that started with a condition called Stargardt's disease, which is a juvenile form of macular degeneration, ended up um, becoming legally blind at the age of 31 due to another condition called inflammation of the retina and now I'm totally blind and that took place in 2008 when I got inflammation of the front of the eye. That's just a quick um, jaunt through my vision loss journey um, which brings me to today which is being totally blind. And Julie tell me, so when that started to happen what were you? Th- what did you think? How did you cope? What kind of support did you want or get? Mm. What was it like for you? It was really tough for the 13 years that I was partially sighted uh-huh. because I didn't belong anywhere. I didn't belong in the world of the sighted and I didn't belong in the world of the blind. And when my mother took me to an ophthalmologist for a second opinion, she said to the ophthalmologist, 
what support services are available for Julie. And he said, what do you want support services for? Oh, my God, that's so, that, that is so appalling. <laughs> so this is an 18-year-old uh, experiencing vision loss, um, becoming partially sighted and having absolutely nowhere to go and totally being, um, you know, refused any help or support that I needed or just the confidence to actually come forward and ask for it. Yeah. I guess that's really knocked that on the head for me. So for those 13 years from the age of 18 to 31, I lived totally unsupported with my vision loss. And really the miracle of the story is going blind when I was 31 and moving towards an organisation that was there to help me, um, Blind Low Vision NZ as it's now known, and of course a group of people who are now like me, other blind people. But can we stop for a second and go, because no, often people, we don't talk about this, how belonging is, I mean belonging is my favourite topic. Yeah. It is we're all human. We all need to belong. Mm. From the day we're born to the day we die, we need a hand to hold. We need to be part of something. And it's not something people often talk about, that, that, that place you were in for those years, as I mentally try and subtract 18 from 31 and go 13, 13 years. Right, okay. That's a long time mm. to feel betwixt and between mm. and not part of. How yes. did, how did you, what helped you cope in that time? Mm, that's a good question. I guess I probably, I won't say I got away with it. Because it was partial sight, I, I just carried on, Denise. I suppose I'm an optimist and I always hope that tomorrow's going to be better than today. And, and focusing on what I could do, always do what I could. Yeah. Um, but as I say, I didn't have anyone that was like me around me and I felt alone. Yeah, 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 that thing of feeling isolated or alone, just alone. Yeah. How was your mum? She, I moved to Wellington. I graduated from Otago University. There's a my, story in there. <laughs> with my degree, actually, the university's about to celebrate 30 years of disability information and support. And I just think what a wonderful thing that is because when I went to university, there was no disability information and support. And that, um, once again, squashed me down, yeah. had nowhere to go, nowhere to ask for help, feeling alone, but just just kept going, kept at it. So how, I'm like, what did you say to yourself when, when you were feeling squashed down, that there was no help and you were alone? Did you lean on friends? Did you, what strategies did you have? Because I'm amazed. I, cause, okay, because you're an optimist, I'm a pessimist. I would have lain down on the ground and gone, it's all over, I can't go on. But you were made of much sterner stuff than me. I don't think I, um, I don't think I had any strategies and that's the, that's the, well, that's what yeah. it felt like. I didn't have any. When I look back now, I still achieved. I think one of my core values, Denise, is action. Okay. You're a woman of action. Yeah, yeah. And I feel better when I get into action. So any feelings that I may have had um, that felt negative or, yeah. or bad or frustrated or overwhelmed, I simply replaced with action. 
Oh, my word, that is such a gorgeous strategy. Your go-to is do something. Mm. So when you were feeling squashed and down, you got up and did something. Yes. My other values are simplicity, love and play. And I think they probably had something to do with that as well, especially simplicity. Mm. What's one thing I can do? Yes, absolutely. I still ask. I do that every day. As soon as things get overwhelming, I say to myself, what can I do? Ah, and where does play come in? Because I've got some very important people in my life and play is their top strength and they bring the sunshine to my life. (laughs) Play, play is an expression of creativity and once again it's about taking action, it's about converting stress or negative energy into positive energy. And play can do that. It can shift your mindset and your energy um, within moments if you just stop and do something playful. I love it. And, And do you think, did you continue play when you were going through university, when you were feeling alone? What did play look like for you then? Hmm, I've gone quiet. What did play look like for me then? I probably immersed myself in work and then we travelled and then came back and had children. There was probably, it was probably when I think about it, Denise, play wasn't such a big feature in my life yeah. then, actually. That's probably what was missing. Ah, isn't you know, that interesting? You're not a yeah. psychologist, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm being done over. This is very beneficial. (laughs) Nobody's ever asked me this before. But you're so playful. (laughs) I love this because as a recovering pessimist, I'm always trying to learn from other people. And it's really encouraging for me to hear you say play has come more into your life because I see you as the epitome of playfulness. We're sitting opposite each other and you are wearing the most fabulous, um, how do we describe the colour? The Pink, um, hot pink. Hot pink, fuchsia, fuchsia hot pink bob wig and the same colour shoes. Well, actually, we're a great pair because I'm in orange, so we are, we are lighting up the colour spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you epitomise play to me. And so to know that it grew for you is really interesting. I always knew when I went blind that the minute I was in trouble was when I lost my sense of humour. Uh-huh. Yeah. And humour and play were such a big part of that journey. And I guess for me, learning Braille was a big part of being able to play because you talk about bringing well-being to life. For me, once I learnt the theory of Braille, it was the application of Braille that really brought it to life for me. Tell me more. Well, it's one thing to learn something. I hadn't been able to read very easily for 13 years when I was partially sighted Uh and then for another four years after I'd gone blind and to be reunited with the written word as you could imagine oh my word yeah Yeah. (laughs) truly liberating but then not just to learn it and to learn the shape of the letters and the code but to apply that code to my life um, in a playful way including my lipsticks um, Have you got Braille, braille yes. markers on your lipsticks? Yeah. 
What do they say? They say P for pink, <laughs> B for brown. <laughs> And HP for hot pink. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking, pink is not enough of a label. I bet you have. I bet you have loads. Well, I do actually. Soft pink, I have. Yes. Okay. So that SP. Goes, that's that's labelled differently. <laughs> Quite right. Um, bacon containers, CDs, everything, and the whole. You know, when when I could apply it to Christmas cards, to birthday cards, to little notes to my blind friends. It just brought the whole thing to life and to and me. And reconnected you. Yeah. Because you said being alone was kind of the, the yeah. hard bit of not belonging. Yes. It suddenly puts you back into the Braille community. And ultimately then going on to set myself a goal of writing one million names in Braille, that has become the ultimate connection because that is about me writing the names of people that I meet in Braille and giving it to them. Tell me what happens to them when you do that. They're totally surprised at the gesture to start with. All of a sudden there's a blind woman in front of them and they're thinking, holy moly, what am I going to do here? (laughs) You can say whatever's in your head. (laughs) (laughs) And then I go, hi, um, I'm Julie. I have a dream to write a million names in Braille and I'd love to write your name in Braille. What's your name? And they'll say, Denise. And I'll say, is that spelt D-E-N-I-S-E? And And she'll say, yeah. Yes. And I'll say, all right, I'm going to write your name for you. And I'll pull out my slate and stylus and in front of their eyes I write these or punch these dots into the formation of their name and hand it to them on a card that has a copy of the alphabet, um, the the print copy of the Braille alphabet underneath it. And then they just, I mean, I know I can't see when people's faces light up, but I can tell when their faces light up. And it's, because I'm holding one in front of me right now, Mm. and... It's an entry into another world, isn't it? Mm. That's what I'm feeling kind of excited about. It's sort of like there's a whole way of being in the world that I'm opening a door of. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a world that was, until a minute ago, scary, and a minute later, not so scary. Um, Okay, now we're so off map here, but I don't care. (laughs) But isn't it interesting that... I think, I think when we think about the big picture of belonging and inclusion, um, the unknown is scary, and so people push it away. And I'm guessing that, you know, it's Tuiki o Te Reo Māori. It's Māori Language Week in New Zealand. And I think people probably have a similar kind of fear and withdrawal from Braille as they do from Te Reo when they don't know any. Mm, that's right, because it puts them in a... Um, a disadvantaged position on the back foot because yeah. they don't know it and it's yeah. unfamiliar and they're at less of an advantage as a person who is fluent with the language. And it's knowing, it's becoming a beginner all over again, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's right. And some people don't like that. It's the becoming a beginner, which is someone who's a bit clueless, who's going to have to ask others for help. Exactly. Yeah, it's vulnerability, really. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. But curiosity is a great thing. And if you can take that with you or people bring that with them, then that turns it into a great conversation. 
And do you know, a um, little psychology nugget from yes. a researcher called Chris Peterson who said it, it, when you study curiosity about what helps people to be more curious, a little knowledge feeds curiosity. No one, If you don't know anything about it, you kind of can't be curious. So just having one's name in mm. Braille, mm. she said, as she's feeling across this person's name, I'm wondering what their name is. Um, you know, as... as um, that little bit of knowledge about, oh, this is my name in Braille. Oh, I wonder what else I could learn. Um, exactly. Yeah. And we all love things that are about us. <laughs> <laughs> she said that's terrible. Oh. Uh, so doing someone's name is, is quite a um, kind of creative way of um, getting them engaged. Bringing them into the world. <laughs> yeah, so, this is, so is this your engagement strategy to make a million people engage with the world world of Braille? Yes. and Tell well, me about your big mission. My big mission, <laughs> write one million names in Braille. When I turned 20 years blind, I wrote on a small piece of paper and placed it in a jar in my office, write one million names in Braille. And what is it that you want to make happen? When, and when you have written A Million Names in Braille, what will have happened? I will have made a million people happy. Oh. I will have brightened their lives. And that began in 2013 when we travelled to India, to Agra, um, visiting the Taj Mahal. Mm -hmm. And we came back to the hotel at night and... We would keep getting lost, Ron, my husband and I. It was a big hotel and there were lots of different dining rooms and where was our room? And keeping um, us on track, or she would always find us, was a young porter called Needy Pandy. And I had started writing the names of our guides in Braille to give them a gift. And I decided that I would write Needy Pandy's name in Braille. And when I gave it to her the next morning, she cried. Oh. Yeah. Same words cannot describe how I'm feeling at this time. I was like, wow, that's a big response to a little act of Braille kindness. Yeah. And then I just sat with that, came back to Dunedin and was about to turn 20 years blind on the 27th of March 2017 and I was listening to the radio uh, an interview with Catherine Ryan on Radio New Zealand and she was interviewing a mental health nurse called Frances Salol who was taking a year off work to raise awareness of mental health by painting one million paintings. Ah. And that's like Wow, that's so cool. What could I do? And I thought, I know, I could write a million names in Braille, Be being prompted, of course, by Needy Pandy's response. Oh, I love that it's it's got two elements to it. One is it's just the it's just a massive gift of kindness of you putting kindness out in the world. Mm. The other side is it is getting a million people to engage with Braille mm. and think about another world as well. That's so. right. It's two pronged. Mm. Are you allowed two prongs? Oh, we love a double whammy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't they call it? It's a twofer. It's a twofer. A twofer. Um. I want to come back to um, 
you mentioned when you'd finished university, you went travelling, and you said we. Mm. Um, who, who's the we, and who've been some of the important influences on you and support for you? That's a great question. The we was my fiancé at the time, Mark Dalloway, and we travelled to England and lived there for a year because Mark was born in England and we returned to his homeland to spend time with his family for one year and that was in the West Midlands in a place called Kidderminster and near Birmingham and we had a great year, travelled around Europe and the United Kingdom and Scotland, Ireland and Wales and then came back and, oh, I use that term, fell pregnant. <laughs> Because that's what happens, isn't it? It's like you trip over a crack in the pavement (laughs) and then bang, all of a sudden. I shouldn't say bang. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, And then had Zachary in 93 and Sebastian in 95. And then in 2001, Mark left our family. And that was, of course, a big change for us. The boys were seven and five by that stage. So in answer to your question in terms of support, Mm. um, interesting because I look back at those times really as the two times when I've really reached my potential are the times that I've had to get out of my comfort zone. One was the year I went blind in 97 and the next time was 2001 when Mark left. And you were a solo mum with two children. I was. And that's when I said, why not, to learning Braille. And I then went on and worked at the organisation as their Braille awareness consultant. But it just pushed me into this other space that I now found myself in and I really had to kind of scramble around and mm. and find work and set things up. And, and, and that was good. It's interesting, isn't it? We're always more than one thing. You know, you, you, a primary identity might have been blind woman and then suddenly you're like, um, well, actually, I'm also... Um, Solo mum, two children. Mm. And right now, that's kind of coming to the fore. Mm. And, and the other identities are going to have to pull in behind mm. it and, and work out what I can do. I think you asked about who were the um, great supports for me. Yeah. My mother, my mother and my father um, were with me the whole time and held my hand. Mum would turn up to the hospital appointment with me and, and there were many and dad would always be waiting outside in the car to pick us up and take us home. So lovely. <laughs> and my sister Amanda has been a huge support. She had three boys at the time I had two and we really brought them up together and that was a lovely thing to be able to do and her husband Russell, they've they've been huge supports. So that's been the continuity piece? Yes. Yeah. 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 Nice. Because um, no one does this on their own. No, we all need people, no, don't we? No. And, of course, the organisation that really took me in and said, it's OK, Julie, that you can't see. Um, we can upskill you and we can teach you how to do things in new ways because your new way, your old ways no longer work, but mm-hmm. we have these new ways that you can interact with the world and that's teaching you how to use your other senses, your smell, your hearing, your taste and your touch. And who was that? 
Who was it? The organisation. Blind Low Vision NZ. Oh, no, that's the Education Network. So formerly, when I went blind in 1997, they were called the Royal New Zealand Foundation of the Blind. Uh, sorry, for the blind. Then they became of the blind. Then they became the Blind Foundation, and they're now known as Blind Low Vision NZ. Brilliant. Brilliant. Mm. And you've done so many interesting things. Um, one of the first ones that I'd ever heard about was you doing Cooking Without Looking. Mm. How did you start that? <laughs> and, and why? Because I know you've worked in schools and, and on TV. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so one of the things really that happened when I went blind was I had to cook, obviously, for the boys and for the family. And my kitchen became my castle. I it, I was familiar with the layout and where everything was, and I liked cooking. And I so I started. That was where my rehab started, really, mm-hmm. in the kitchen. Yeah, learning how to use a knife and pour a cup of tea and butter a piece of bread and put jam on it. But I also like baking, and I had this recipe in my head for these truffles that. I would keep making and making, and I would I added licorice to them, and then started dipping them in chocolate, um, because I if I couldn't remember it, I couldn't bake it, and this was a recipe that I just kept making and making and making, and I felt sure everybody. Um, when they saw me coming with these truffles, <laughs> said, "Here's Julie with those bloody truffles again." <laughs> More truffles. <laughs> and now it's me that says not those bloody truffles again. But they really um, just became a bit of a signature dish. And what well, actually it was in two. So did you not know how to read Braille at that time and so your recipes were, had yeah. to be in your head? Yeah, they were. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't have any recipe books at No that YouTube stage. video. No, yeah. no. Yeah. No, when were we? The late 90s, that's right. Yeah. No Alexa to ask. Alexa, yeah. Alexa, where's my recipe? Yeah. <laughs> but then I took that to the stage, Denise, and started doing cooking without looking demonstrations because I love telling my story and it just seemed a natural progression to do that. And how did, because I know you've gone to schools with that mm. as well, how did that go? What kind of response did it you get great, from students? Because food is a great connector. Yeah. Food is love. Food is saying, hey, I have to eat and cook too, just like you do. Yeah. All of a sudden we've got something in common. Mm. Nice. And they, and they loved Well, I'll say they loved it. They loved it. <laughs> yeah, they did. They had a good time. Oh, I'm sorry, but you know, you know they loved it more. If you think about some of the other options in their day. That's right. You were, you were a highlight, let's Quite face right. it. Quite right. Quite right. Um, now, tell me, the, the other thing I really want to ask you about is, is because I've been watching you on LinkedIn, mm. is your work as The Blind Ref. Is that a, did you choose that name? Tell me more. Oh, it's probably bestowed upon me. Um, but, well, I was that blind woman, so it seemed obvious to be that blind ref. And that came about when I had started saying why not to opportunities that came my way. When I went blind, I got asked to go cross-country skiing and I turned it down, went home, sat on the couch and thought, you stupid woman, what kind of um, blind person are you going to make if you turn down opportunities that come your way? 
You know, I think, but I also think a little bit of self-compassion. Like, yeah, <laughs> yes, we need to to take opportunities, but oh my god, that would have terrified me. Yeah. So I um, said, "Why not?" From then on, and and of course, this question came along. Well, it did terrify me. Yeah. But that's I'm thinking, how the hell is a blind woman going to referee? a game of new touch rugby, how am I going to know what's going on? But I just knew from experience that turning up was the best thing to do and then things happened. And why did they ask you? Was it to, so that they would feel less inhibited, feeling that nobody was looking at them in the nude playing uh, rugby? <clears throat> it was that, well, no, I don't think that was it. It was that whole thing about referees being blind. Oh, right. And making so, mad calls. And so actually ask a blind woman to do it and she'll do a better job. Well, it was, you know, what are you, blind or something, ref? Yes. It's that kind and you'd of go, thing. Yes. Yeah, 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 yes, yes, I am. Excuse me. <laughs> yes, I am. But it's a totally ableist statement. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, completely in line with what I'm trying to teach to at the moment. Yeah, and call out. But it was a great opportunity for me, and I had fun, and the guys were great. And, and, and did was, you just make the calls as you saw fit? I had the organiser of the game called out and told me when to blow the whistle and told me what to say. Uh, we had a fully clothed streaker that came onto the pitch. Oh, that's gorgeous. <laughs> and he was chased down by a naked policeman wearing nothing but a helmet. <laughs> and then, of course, when I started issuing red cards, especially to the nude blacks, the crowd would call out, Boo, what are you, blind or something, Rev? Oh, that's great. <laughs> so turning all of that on its head. Yes. Nice. And tell me, so tell me about some of the things you've called out, some of the ableism that's, that's just driving you crazy. Oh. Well, we've, got, e- we've got five hours. Yeah, okay, that, yeah, that's <laughs> right. That, ex- that experience uh, of refereeing that new touch like me gave me a, a thought that maybe I could use the card systems, the coloured cards that they use in sport to call out ableism and that whole sports-related um, field. And so we use um, yellow and red cards to send ableism to the sin bin. Um, yellow cards have things that people say um, that are ableist statements and some of those go like using terminology like handicapped and crippled and blind as a bat, uh, turning a blind eye. <laughs> There's lots of blind ones, yeah. blindsided. Do you want to, no, can I pray for you? Um, but you don't look blind or you don't look disabled. And they're all based in the assumptions that able-bodied people or non-disabled people are superior and that disabled people require fixing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of the premise of ableism. The red cards are used to call out things such as speaking to a support person rather than the person with the impairment, um, resting or touching somebody's mobility device, framing disability as either tragic or inspirational. That's Both of which are, they must drive, does that drive you crazy? Yeah, they do. I, I really, really fought really hard at the beginning to 
the pity one because I didn't want to be pitied. Don't give me a pity, yeah. Yeah, I, I hated that. And, of course, <laughs> the more I, um, you know, resisted that, the more I moved into doing things and the more, ironically, that moved in me into this inspirational space where people were thinking I was inspirational. So it's quite fun. It's a, been a, an odd journey. Can I just be me? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and I'm imagining the 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 idea of being the blind ref and calling out ableism um, came after a lot of frustration mm. with the behaviours. It did. It took it took me twenty five years, really, Denise, actually, because to work it all out to work to go through the rehab, to learn to do things in different ways, to have people say these things like, it must be terrible not to be able to see. <laughs> I mean, one of my, Thanks. Yeah, yeah, thanks. yeah, yeah. That's going to make my day Lovely, lovely. <laughs> yeah. How can you cook? Or how can you sightsee when you can't see? Um, there were just things that, that just came my way all the time, and I didn't really know what to do with them. I just ignored them but they they go deep and then I guess really it was me developing the accessibility game which is you know send ableism to the sin bin and discovering some of the disability theory and realizing what this stuff was was actually a thing you mean it's a thing when they say these things to us then that really um, helped me and yeah, and building my confidence and discovering what it was all about, being able to label it, put a term to it, yeah. and then be able to say, this is what it is. And actually, do you realise that when you say these things, these are very, uh, these are offensive to blind people? But it's trying to do it in a way that's f- playful, yeah. which comes back to my core values. So teaching in a playful way so that people don't feel um, totally defensive. Yeah, so they're not alienated no. and more likely, so that they are more likely to change, to yes. hear and take on board the message. And yes. Isn't it interesting though, Julie, because I think so that there's, there's a really strong um, tendency in us to not want to upset the apple cart, to not upset other people and, and to take all that stuff in. Mm. even though it upsets us. You know, I think about the same for racism. Mm. Um, I remember working in London for three years and every morning somebody, as you go into the office, would say, oh, top of the morning, to be sure, to be sure. Mm. And I would just sigh. Mm. And um, and it's it's doing exactly what you've done that was needed to find a way to call it out in a way that explains its impact and what it does and asks people to change. But I love that. I guess that this is that that sense I have of the frustration becomes the fuel when mm. it reaches a certain point. It's what powered you through, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. That's right. But it, t- it took a long time to, to realise that. For it to grow, for the yes. frustration to grow big enough that you don't care about who you embarrass and it's like, right, 
time to do something. I, I think that's the benefit of being in my 50s. I think I don't think I could have done it in my 30s. But growing older, <laughs> I, I, I care less about what people think. I care less about the impact. I care more about the impact on me. Yeah. Um, I think that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah. Do we think this is growing? Is this part of maturity? I think so. My God, we might be growing up. <laughs> Who knew? Oh, I think it's growing old. I'm calling <laughs> yeah. it growing up. Okay. That's okay. what we're growing. Right. We're definitely growing up. Okay. Um, and I just think it's that energy. On one hand, you've got the, the frustration gives you energy to be the blind ref and call it out. Mm. But um, how do you sustain that? What's keeping you going? What's keeping me going? I I like moving towards things. Yeah. Goals really keep me going. That's why I set myself the goal to write one million names in Braille. I've got another goal to walk every street in Dunedin with my sighted guide and friend Joe and my husband Ron. Those things keep me going. I Every day I write a gratitude list of 10 things I'm grateful for and I email that to two email lists, two groups of friends, and they email me theirs back. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. How does it feel to get other people's lists? It's lovely. Yeah, because you, you find out what's going on in their lives and you get to see the things that they're grateful for. God, this is a really efficient way of communicating with friends. Yes. We don't have to send each other all the dreary, oh, my life's yeah. so hard. <laughs> Just cut to the chase. Tell me what's good. <laughs> That's the morning routine. And yeah. the night routine is another group of friends. And we send one thing that we've smelled, heard, tasted and touched throughout the day. And that's called a blindfulness list. And we <gasps> they go out at night. I love that. Oh, my God, I'm <laughs> taking that away. A blindful list. Yeah. Blindfulness list. Yes. That is beautiful. And so you are, gosh, you're not alone. You are such a super connected person, aren't you, in terms of the, the numbers of communities that you are part of? I like it when um, we can support one another yeah. with our days. Yeah. And I really do, I won't say race to the computer in the morning, but it's a beautiful way to start your work day, writing 10 things you're grateful for. And it's a beautiful way to end your day by writing the one thing you've smelt, heard, tasted and touched, and then receiving other people's, mm. of course, as well. And does coffee feature? I'm just thinking coffee would be on mine most days. Just the smell of coffee. It's yeah, good, yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah, it is. Oh you, oh, you mean on their, on their list? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Sorry, I thought, I thought you meant did co does coffee feature in my day. Um, oh, no, <laughs> sorry. No, no, I'd gone to the list. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm no, such right. down the rabbit hole of what's on that list of sensory perception. It's, uh, it's coffee is on, but one of the challenging senses, I think the most challenging sense for the, the list or the people on the list, including myself, is smell. Oh, can I tell you something I did with smell? Yes. My beautiful dog died two days after we moved house, and it was just heartbreaking. And she died on this beautiful, quite, uh, the detail is quite new, big, grey bed, 
kind of woolly bed. Quite new meaning. It wasn't completely awful. It was still very nice. And so I said to Nigel when he took the dog to the vet, please make sure you keep her bed. So I have been lying on the dog's bed and smelling her. Yeah. And it's really nice. It makes me cry, but I still feel like I'm almost back with her again when I smell her. Yeah, that's nice that you, um, and, and once again, it's that sort of mindfulness aspect, mm. isn't it? it? It's when a, a sense or a smell or a noise um, or a, a, a touching something can actually make you stop. Yeah. That's like, oh, wow, smell that. Mm. And you're totally in the moment of smelling. And I'll actually physically sometimes stop and say, feel that sun on our face Mm. or smell that coffee, smell that bread. What would feature, what featured on your list yesterday in in terms of smell, taste, touch? Or the day before, you can mingle a few few together. The the ginger, as I lifted the tea bag out of the lemon and ginger box, that was such a, you know, mm. wafted up. It's when things shoot up your nose. That's yes. a really uh, a lovely sensation. The sound of a phone conversation I had with my friend whose birthday it was. The sound of her voice. The taste of the vegetarian meal I cooked for dinner last night which was sort of roasties with a pea and gravy mash on top that was really yummy and touching the orbit braille reader that I read from um, my notes and that's actually got a dual sensory aspect because it makes a beautiful sound as well oh. as the pins pop up. Oh, I'm going to have to see this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to have a good touch of that. And I love that, you know, I, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but um, smell goes straight, I think, into the hippocampus where memory is coded. And so um, smell helps us access old memories. Mm. In an instant, doesn't it? Helen Keller talks beautifully about that, about being transported in time. You know, the smell of the peach orchard took her back to her childhood. And, yeah, it's lovely, isn't it, when it does that? It's gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, you've really, you have opened up my world today. Thank you. Oh, that's nice, Denise. Thank you. You have to mine as well. (laughs) I feel like I've been done over. (laughs) I don't know if done over is quite what we might choose today. No. Sorry about that. That is okay. I'll take whatever I get. Um, tell me, Julie, what is one change that you wish everyone could make to improve equity inclusion, equity and inclusion for any community? I think it would be if we move remove the word suffer mm-hmm. from our language because it's used so much and it's it's an ableist word and I think if we struck that out 
um, of our lexicon, then we would remove a lot of suffering physically. I don't suffer from vision loss. I live with vision loss. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that people suffer um, from mental illness or um, from mental health issues. They live with them. They don't suffer from depression. They live with depression. And that's up to them, the person who lives with the depression, to decide whether they suffer from it or not anyway, not for it to be bestowed upon them as because they have depression, therefore they must suffer. I think suffer is such a powerful word that's mm. slipped in all the time so I think that's just one thing but it's certainly mind your language Thank you That is really lovely I like Mind your language Think about where it sends people And Julie to close tell me about one or two things what do you do if you've had a bad day and you're not feeling if, if things have been a bit tough what do you do to lift yourself up? Well, that's easy. I like to play, Denise. <laughs> I play. So for me, that is making something, baking something. It's getting into the kitchen, mm. baking um, a banana loaf or a date loaf or some Louis Square or something like that. Yeah. It's making a card for someone and writing their name in braille so that that actually elevates me really if I got really stuck I would just write some names in braille because attached to that is other people and they make me smile I love this and I want to can, can I just say thank you you have just changed my sense of play and made me go oh making making is play mm. anytime I make or create and that you're right they are go-tos that I haven't labelled as play. So I am going to mind my language now and I am extending play to so many more activities thanks to Julie Woods. Thank you Denise and I think it's important to, to bring it into that every day and to have some simple things that are very accessible for you when you start noticing that you're feeling a bit flat or a bit tired or want to shift your energy. Go and do something playful. I love it. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's an absolute delight to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Denise. I want to share Julie's powerful resilience recipe of action, simplicity, love and play with absolutely everyone who needs to manage their stress and inject some joy into their day. And I know for me, there will be a post-it on my desk to remind me of Julie's approach of, as soon as things get overwhelming, ask, what can I do and find one thing I can do? And I will absolutely be making a blindfulness list of sensory appreciation each day from now on. What will you do differently as a result of listening today? You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. To learn more about how you can build wellbeing and resilience for your team, go to nziwr.co.nz. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate the podcast to help others who might enjoy it find it more easily. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.